Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Wheelchair Activist. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I interview some pretty amazing disabled people and some amazing allies of the disabled community. Today, I want to introduce you to Paul Fuller. Paul Fuller is the Executive Director of Partnerships for Scope. He's previously worked at the BBC and at Sky in a wide variety of interesting roles. He is also now an active supporter and speaker for the charity Guide Dogs. It's actually some of my conversations with Paul that have inspired me to start this podcast. I think you will find him as fascinating as I do, and I can't wait to jump into this conversation. At 21, just as I started at the BBC, I was told that um, I would sadly go blind between 30 and 70. Uh, I actually went blind at 55. For anyone undergoing any of the challenges that you and I face, M, it's that I really do think that society will help. And if the first person you ask isn't helpful, don't think that's it. Great. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the wheelchair activist. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Well, firstly, Emma, thank you very much for the invite. And then am I expected to disclose that we know one another already? <laughs> uh, you absolutely can. I was um, going to say, so you and I both work at Scope. Um, and yeah, it would just be wonderful if you could tell our listeners a little bit about you and what you do and um, what you did before you joined Scope. Sure. Gosh, that's a very broad question. Um, Scope. So I am the Executive Director of Partnerships, and um, I believe that uh, Scope shows great insight and um, offers the opportunity for partnerships to be uh, impact, reach, influencing, and the traditional income, which I find a, a really transformative opportunity. And uh, at this particular time, I think that society is actually highly engaged in wanting change. So I'm very lucky to have the role that I do at the time that I do. And prior to this great adventure, uh, I've been at Scope two years, well, 18 months. Um, I was previously in media for 30 years. Uh, I worked initially at the BBC and then at Sky for 26 years, gracious me. And then um, I retired, uh, went traveling with my wife, which was fabulous. Got a guide dog, there's the clue. I have a rare hereditary eye disorder called choroideremia. So my parents have known since birth. And at 21, just as I started at the BBC, I was told that um, I would sadly go blind between 30 and 70. Uh, I actually went blind at 55. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think one of the very interesting things about your perspective and you know from conversations that you and I've had about disability I'm always so interested in hearing from 
you, but also other people who have acquired a disability or rather that that disability started manifesting later in life as opposed to people like me who have been born with their condition and it's manifested from from day one really um so i have another very big question that is very difficult for people to answer but i i like to ask it anyways because i think it's such an interesting one um but what does disability mean to you yeah it's a great question isn't it and i i think it's what you just touched on because i have had two lives pre my disability changing everything in my life my employment my independence uh, my financials everything um so what do i know i know that having a disability makes life harder that's not to say that it isn't at times challenging for everyone but there is no doubt that once one has a disability the world understandably there is you know in the uk one in five of the population has a disability that still means the vast majority don't and that's why it's harder for us the minority um so the simple answer to uh, what does disability mean to me it means that the world is just that little bit tougher it's not horrendous mm. but it is tougher i think that that's a really fair answer and i think a lot of people are surprised by that one in five statistic of how many people have some sort of a disability and of course yours is not a visible disability so i'm wondering what been your experience as someone with an invisible disability of <laughs> attitudes towards you and i'm touching because i know that you have some good examples but I'm, i think a lot of people yes. would be really interested no absolutely the one <laughs> the one that really uh what's the best words for it I'll just share the experience and your listeners can choose their own view on it. So the amount of times that I have been in the park with Bolt and people have said to me, "Oh, he's beautiful," which he is, and they said, "How long have you been training him?" And I go, "No, he's mine. I'm blind." To which <laughs> nine times out of 10, they go oh you don't look blind oh goodness how, <laughs> how, how is that helpful till so i go oh no you're right i can see or yeah, it's just yeah yeah i think it's that in that moment of awkward silence the first words that come into their mouths are not necessarily helpful to either of us So yeah I I encountered that one um and I think uh it actually then enables us to start a conversation where I can say oh you know I I lost my eyesight at 55 and yes it is tough and 
of course, this is a quick, quick check to um, guide dogs. I'm not even certain they know what they've created, but to say that Bolt is life changing on so many levels would be an understatement. So um, quick shout out to guide dogs and a, a big thank you for Bolt. Absolutely. I think it's so it's so interesting that you get that response that, oh, you don't look blind as often as you do, because could you think of a more ridiculous I know. thing to say, really? Yeah. Right. <laughs> or the other one is, what a shame, or I'm so sorry. Mm. And you think, again, walk in my shoes. It's not as bad as you might fear. Mm. It simply creates a another engaging way of viewing and participating in the world around us. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting that you say it's not as bad as you might think or that you might fear because I've spoken to a number of disabled people, obviously through my work at Scope, but through this podcast. And a lot of people, when I ask them about the barriers that they encounter they say that the biggest barrier is other people and other people's attitudes towards them and that idea that attitude of sort of pitying because Mm. you have an impairment I find really difficult to to reconcile because it feels like they're making such a judgment on the way that you live and what your outlook on life is and Sort of all of these things encompassed in that. That's really well said, Emma. Um, because I came from a, a media background, um, I still have my bestie, uh, Magnus. Give him a quick shout out because I'm about to say something rude. Um, and that was that probably in our late 30s, having done a successful pitch for some work for Sky Sports. We were sat in a bar, quite drunk on Saki, and we wound up playing the game, what's the worst thing that you can imagine happening to you? And without a moment's hesitation, he went going blind, unaware of what I was keeping to myself at Sky. And in my thinking at that time, I just thought, I'm still not ready to talk about it with anyone, even my best friend. So I just let it pass. And it's, he's been incredible and so supportive through my sight loss. And yet neither of us has ever referred to that night because it's just, it's how society thinks. And all I can do now is try to show him actually your fear potentially my fear it isn't quite as bad as we might have thought Mm, that's so interesting and I can imagine at the point where he said that that must have felt quite uncomfortable because it was becoming a reality Uh, for you at that point and like you say the difficulty around him not knowing you know I think it it goes to a little bit of an example that I use quite a lot. But if a non-disabled person 
you know, needs to nip to the shop, for example, and they go in, they buy their milk or whatever, and they come out and you ask them, were there any, you know, barriers going into there? You know, for them, no, because they they don't have a disability, but for a wheelchair user, they may notice if there's a step to get in. And I I sort of never really want to blame the non-disabled person for not noticing that step because why would they if they didn't know that sorry if it isn't a barrier for them and they've not encountered it as a barrier for someone in their life but I think it's after you know that it matters how you then look at barriers and sort of attitudes that you may have but as you say your best friend didn't didn't know and I, I just want to shamelessly plug the um podcast that I just released um which was actually with my childhood best friend um which I think would be interesting for your friend to to listen to because even though yes we were children and it all of that but it was really interesting to hear her perspective on disability as the supportive friend which which you said your friend is now towards you yeah, absolutely. Well, what you've just done there, we used to refer to as an in-program promo. And I'm very impressed that you did. Um, absolutely. For anyone else listening, I recommend that you listen to as many of Emma's podcasts as possible. <laughs> um, I think that's also quite interesting. The evolving of our friendship. Clearly, we don't play tennis or squash or go on bike ride <laughs> anymore <laughs> although his appetite for winning probably means he'd enjoy them more now <laughs> a bad um, bolt but also a fun yeah. this on your behalf <laughs> absolutely absolutely i think um yeah i i it's a good one, isn't it? I walked um, the South Downs with my sister a couple of years ago um, to celebrate kind of acceptance of blindness. And um, we took Bolt. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I was chatting to my sister over a cup of tea and she was laughing. At, it was grueling. It was tough. And yeah. our feet hurt like you wouldn't believe. And so the 16, 17, 18 miles a day doesn't sound bad until you're on day five or day six, at which point I think I had snapped and said, Hides, I may be blind, but I'm not stupid, which um, she carried and reminded me that I'd said. And I think it's just that kind of um, finding our feet, having the confidence to speak up, you touched about supermarkets. Mm. I had heard, though never expected to face, as I walked into uh, my local Sainsbury's with Bolt, one of the assistants came up and went, no dogs, no dogs, please, please leave, please leave. And I went, oh, I'm sorry, you don't understand. She's a working dog. Mm. No dogs, she said more forcefully, to which I went, no, I'm sorry, you don't understand. He's allowed. And at that moment where I was thinking, gosh, is this going to be the first significant falling out? Um, 
another Sainsbury's staff member, clearly um, perhaps having served slightly longer or, or, or having a, knowing more of the law, rushed mm. up and went, oh, no, no. To give you an idea, clearly I was um, a regular. He went, this is Paul and Bolt. Bolt's allowed in here. He's a guide dog. To which the kind of lady just sort of smiled and, and kind of stepped aside. But it is interesting, isn't it, how that potential confrontation isn't fair for mm. too many people on a day-to-day. I, I was quite combative with eyesight. Trust me, I think I might be marginally worse without, but that still doesn't change the fact no one should face that. No one shouldn't be able to get into that Sainsbury's, be that in a wheelchair, with a dog, with hearing challenges. You know, it's a place where society should be as inclusive as possible. Yeah, I think so many people listening to this will be able to relate all too well to those everyday examples of either discrimination or near discrimination that you face. And they, they're they very difficult because I find some of them can take you off guard a little bit. And, you know, it's because it happens where you least expect it, you know, going to Sainsbury's, that's not a place you know it's not a it's not a courtroom for sure yeah. you know expecting to do battle um yeah. so to speak it's just you living your everyday life and I you know, I admire your you know being a bit combative and you know saying <laughs> that because I mean I I definitely have been combative myself but it's difficult though because it's when it does catch you off guard and you feel that you didn't respond in the way that you wanted to, we feel that you should have. I mean, I, I don't know if I told you this example, but I had um it was one of my first times back into um the came into Cambridge City Center after all of the various lockdowns. I was going for an eye exam and the person doing my eye exam kept asking my dad. The questions instead of me, which I do not understand how we thought that that was going to work. But my dad was there as my carer because I need 24 hour care. But he was asking him all of the questions and I responded and it just carried on happening, even though I thought, well, I've, I've surely shown him I'm capable of answering his questions. He'll eventually start asking me, but that didn't happen. And I felt really angry at myself afterwards for not sort of getting a bit, but I don't know what the right word is, but for not getting a bit combative, I suppose, and saying, hey, it's my eye exam you're doing, it's not his, please speak to me, I'm capable, and all of that, but I didn't. And, you know, I addressed it afterwards um, in a way that felt comfortable, but it does really take you by surprise sometimes. touched on the key word surprise mm. you know so um surprises similar to your own have been and and both positive and challenging the the positive um 
I was at a tube station. I'd arrived with Bolt. Bolt and I had been together two weeks. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not certain whether he's escalator trained. Um, would you mind telling me where the stairs are? And the, uh, the, the, the guard on duty said, oh, don't, be, don't, don't, don't give it any more thought. I'll switch off the escalator and walk you down. Right. Above and beyond. Mm. Wonderful. Um, entering uh, my local um, post office to do some sending cards at Christmas. And the lady behind the counter looked up and went, no dogs, and looked down again, to which I sort of said, oh, no, 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 he's a working dog. Um, and at that moment, a complete stranger behind me said, it's not just any working dog. This is Bolt. He's on the telly. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which, A, was a surprise, as was the response of the post office lady who went, oh, is he famous? Can I take a photograph with him? <laughs> Which was an upgrade from three minutes ago <laughs> when she hadn't even wanted to let him in. And then finally, I too, like you, um, found myself in a restaurant with friends, with Bolt. So obviously it's clear that I am blind. And the lady serving us and there was four of us and she was very courteous and she wasn't looking to be difficult but she said to my friends oh does he does he need a braille menu or would he like me to read for him mm. right and it was a surprise and initially I thought oh she's joking and then I went oh he is blind but he does have hearing perhaps I could answer those questions for you. But you're right. In that moment of surprise, you're kind of caught off balance, aren't you? You're not mm. really expecting. So all I tried to do illustratively there was say there's good, bad and indifferent all mm. the time throughout our engagement with society. I couldn't agree more. And one thing that I'm really interested in asking you about um is that you know we've mentioned that your condition progressed over time i've started noticing that you were having challenges with your vision at the age of 21 but then became blind in your 50s but one thing that i think is really interesting about your story is that you didn't disclosed your disability when you were working at Sky. And I think this is a question that comes up a lot when I engage with other disabled people who are looking for work, you know, that do I disclose? What do I worry is going to happen if I do? But I'm really interested to ask you why it was that you didn't disclose. You know, is that something that was because like you said earlier, that you weren't ready to talk about it or was it the culture or what was it that informed yeah. that decision? Yeah, Emma, I, I know it to be everything. So <clears throat> my um, parents knew from birth that I would lose my eyesight. And um, it's rather strange that with that knowledge, came enormous burdens for them, for my mother particularly. Um, I won the RSPB Young Artist of the Year 
at the age of 11 and a half with my painting of a peregrine falcon. Um, what I thought was a moment of triumph, my mother just dissolved into floods of tears because I guess she knew something at that time that I didn't. Mm. And then at 13, I won an art scholarship through to my, to my senior school. And then, you know, being accepted to the BBC's creative department, having done four years at art college without any reference of potentially my choice, perhaps not being <laughs> the, the best for a person that would be losing their sight. You can imagine the trauma when my parents did decide to tell me at 21, something they'd known since I was a child. And um, I had been at the BBC a week when they found the, the strength to tell me that, you know, I, I would be losing my eyesight. And they clearly had found it very traumatic. My mother made what I think is an excellent statement of when I asked why she had not told me prior to 21, she said, well, growing up is hard enough without the additions that this pressure would have added to you. And I, I think that that is right. Um, and so I then decided, well, I think I've lied to the BBC, uh, not going to be honest now. And so after the four years with the BBC, when I changed to Sky, I by then had the mindset of, I am in a job that I absolutely adore. I could not be happier. This isn't mm. work. This is extreme pleasure that I am being paid for. And the longer that went on, the more senior I became, the more certain I became that it would be inappropriate to share. So that by the time I arrived at 53 and the head of sport, who was a new head of sport, not the one that I'd worked for pretty much 19 years, about 26 years, this was a new guy, someone I knew as, as a sort of fellow worker at Sky said to me, Paul, we're worried about you. Is there anything you'd like to talk about? I actually replied, I'm sorry, Barney. We're not having that conversation. Um, okay. Went home and reflected on that and still didn't have the strength to share with them. I went back in and said, um, I'm afraid that I will need to discontinue in this role, which I have loved. Um, and they kind of sort of said, well, is there any other role that you'd like? But when you've done something for 26 years that you really, really, really enjoy, and because Sky had been so successful, I had been very well financially remunerated, I just came to the conclusion that my father had retired at 55 and lived to 85 and adored those years, I was pretty certain I would have a very happy retirement. And it just didn't feel something that I wanted to try and explain to Sky. It just felt a very private matter. Now, 
I feel five years, six years later, entirely different. Emma, if I could roll back the years, I think I would become a very forthright ambassador for inclusion. <laughs> At the, the time, it, it just, you know, it had been a secret all my life. And at 53, 54, I just didn't have the tools or the inclination to discuss it with others. So how do you go from being in that place to now working at yeah, Scobin? <laughs> but no, but it, I think it's it's so interesting how you've made that oh, shift in your personal thinking, but then your outward yeah. you know, talking about disability. So what what prompted well, that for you? Well, as I touched on, um, I think I touched on, I have a, a, a fantastically supportive wife. And um, after I left Sky, we went on two years of adventures, Cambodia, Vietnam, India, all are extraordinary. Um, I liked um, I, a Cambodian fishing boat after a storm and us trying to get onto a jetty of an island and my wife shouting at the um, the uh, Cambodian fisherman, be careful of him, he's blind. Which oh, I gosh. thought was kind of quite an extensive um, uh, increase to their English vocabulary. When I questioned it, she said I was signalling it as well. Anyway, the point of the story is that we, we had this rather beautiful and fantastic two years, which I think really helped my transition. The, the people that we met, the support that I was given throughout those two years was amazing. And it culminated with us returning to the UK to be receiving of a guide dog, Bolt, who is a, a true life changer. And in that engagement with Bolt and that certainty that society was good, and also the realisation that I wasn't going to have the emotional crash that I had feared for the 30, 32 years prior to that, that I kind of always thought, when I go blind, I'm going to be so depressed and so angry. And none of that really happened. I shall quickly share, um, this didn't pass without some level of emotional support in that um, on one particular day, I had spoken out <laughs> uh, inappropriately and my wife had said, is everything okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, I think so. And then our beloved daughter said to me, no, it isn't. I've heard you shouting at the fridge when you don't think anyone knows. And I kind uh -huh. of thought, ah, ah, I do need a little bit of help. And I went and saw an anger therapist um, as well as getting bolt. And it all kind of seemed to flow into a very comfortable viewpoint where I then started to speak for guide dogs on the, the great having a guide dog. I then thought about becoming a trustee of guide dogs. Uh, that again opened my thinking to a wider 
view of the charitable sector. Mm. Guide dogs are amazing, but I didn't feel that I was the right candidate to be a trustee. But it definitely opened my mind, attitude, desire. And I had befriended the lady from Odgers Bernstein, the recruitment company. And uh, I said, oh, you know, thanks very much. That was really great. Uh, A week later, I was on holiday with my wife again. And she phoned and said, are you certain that you've retired? And I kind of went, yeah, yeah, I, I am. Why? And she said, because I think there's a terrific job for you at Scope. And uh, she shared with me the job and it, it sounded brilliant. And I said, oh, um, I would at first like to speak with the CEO. She's incredibly arrogant on reflection, but she said, oh, I'm sure that can be arranged. I had a, a Zoom call with Mark. I really liked what Scope stood for. I liked Mark. I liked the possibilities of what might come from that role. Um, Scope certainly didn't make it easy. I had about five interviews, including one with the chair, Robin Miller, which concluded in Scope saying, would you come and work for us? So that's why I'm here now and uh, really enjoying it, really finding so much in the possibility of the the goals that Scope has set, Mm. employment, independence, extra costs, the challenges faced by families of disabled people. You know, I can't think of the additional burdens that I put on my immediate family. Uh, And also then, you know, further to my mum's observation, growing up is hard. So what it must be like for all disabled people, of which, of course, I am one, um, though I kind of joined the party late, I'm still certain that showing that additional support at all ages is a really good and positive uh, aspiration of scope and, mm. and all of us who work there. I think that's so interesting that it was through traveling outside of the UK that it that helped develop your change in perception of disability. And I'm so glad that your family as well were supportive and noticing the differences because I think it's really difficult sometimes to notice how we're coping with things. I think particularly as disabled people, there are so many things that we do have to cope with that we have absolutely no say over. So if you're able to get support from whether it's a therapist or you know some type of other mental health professional, I I'm a huge you know advocate for people receiving that support. I receive it myself and just think it's invaluable to people's development. But also I really think for disabled people it's so important to have that outlet if you can to talk about things openly and freely without being worried about you know, how is it going to impact that other person, me saying that I'm actually really struggling with how things are, which can be difficult to do to friends and family. So I'm really glad that you you had that support. 
You're so right. You are so, so right. You know, it's not just us, but those that we hold near and dear. And then the levels that we might seek their support. Um, Accessibility, independence means so much to me because for 50 years, I had no, 30 years, I had no trouble accessing a website. Mm. Now, as a blind man, there's nothing I hate more than the sense of defeat when I have to go, Jackie, please help. We can't work <laughs> this. Um, and then what if one reflects on that, that's an additional burden to them that they didn't necessarily, especially with, with those who progress into disability. My wife maintains, I'm not certain this is true, that on our first date, I said, you can't marry me, I'm going blind. I don't believe that, I don't believe it. But um, it is an interesting one, isn't it? It's, it's that acknowledgement of, you know, um, yeah, those, those around us and the impact we make on their lives as well as our own. It's, it's a really complicated one to unpack. Um, and I, I think that you are right. Being able to seek the additional support of professionals um, another voice, another thought. It's it's all really positive and helpful. Completely agree. And very presumptuous if you did say that on the first date that you can't possibly. You're obviously thinking about marrying me. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I still to this day, 32 years later, feel that I am very lucky and um yeah, I, I'm not quite certain what Mrs. Fuller saw in me, but I, I very much liked what I saw in her. Well, I want to ask you a question that I really love asking because it can encompass so many different things. But what would you say is something that you are the most proud of? <laughs> well, I guess that winning winning the young Young Artist of the Year was, 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 was certainly the sort of start point. Um, I was very proud of what a good swimmer I was. Um, loved, what else have I been proud of? I think, truthfully, because it was so life-changing, the joining the BBC, um, because ultimately that was the stepping stone to Sky. I met my wife at Sky. Sky gave me a, a knowledge that for those who are truly lucky, you find yourself in a role that so suits you that it isn't really work. Mm. I don't remember a day at Sky that I didn't adore. And I think that's an extraordinary gift that I'm very aware very few people can honestly say. So, um, yeah, pride, pride in my family, pride in my job. Yeah, those, I guess, are the two, two majors. I love that. And I think, you know, as 
as much as you enjoyed your time at Sky, I can personally say how pleased I am that you didn't decide to completely retire and that you did join Scope because I I certainly love working with you. So I'm I'm very glad that you did decide to rejoin the workforce, as it were. <laughs> That's very kind, Emma. Thank you. I'll take that compliment. Wrong with it. Fortunately, um, this is um, you can't see me blushing. I, I'm <laughs> hopeless with that kind of compliment. I won't hear your next question. I'm too embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think you've touched on my next question a little bit in one of your previous comments, but I want to ask it anyways. It's what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, gosh, that's you're, you're right. I kind of have. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, the truth is that looking back now, I can say it's going to be okay, which, wow, makes me emotional even thinking about it. Um, you know, I guess it was quite traumatic, but also it gave me purpose. At 21, as I outlined to you, I, I just started at the BBC, even in that first month or so, I was already certain that this is why I was on this planet. This this was what I was going to love. And I believe that that being tied into being told that I would be losing my sight meant that I knew that potentially my career wouldn't be the full length that everyone else's was, which then meant that I think certainly for the first 25 years, I worked longer hours, harder hours than anyone around me because I just thought I'm loving this and this mm. isn't going to last. And perhaps now I wish I could have told my younger self try and enjoy all of it. I believe that, that potentially my home life was partly sacrificed by that obsession with work. And I'm regretful of that, though I still can't quite understand how all of my family seem to have forgiven me for that um, for that and uh, you know I, I think having a, a, a wife who works in television as well means she kind of understood the pressure and hours um, all of these things that I kind of wish I could have told my younger self are simply reflections on through no skill of my own I seem to have found the right partner I seem to have lucked out in the friends that I have um, that, you know, I, I couldn't love my children more. Very grateful for the guidance that my parents gave. Gosh, this is, sounds like an acceptance speech at awards, doesn't it? Yeah, I um, love it. <laughs> I'm trying to reflect on something else more poignant and significant. I, I think I'm going to go with my original answer 
that actually, Paul, it's going to be okay. I I think that that's so powerful. And what you said about making sure that you enjoy all of it, I think that that's something that everyone could probably do with remembering a bit more, not just when you have a progressive condition, although, you know, that's that's probably something I can also relate to a bit, you know, enjoy the abilities that you have while you're while you have them, essentially. But yeah. I'm really interested to ask you, what advice would you give to others like you? Say if someone else knows that they're eventually going to lose an ability and what what advice would you give them based on your experience? Yeah, gosh. Um, I think because we are all individuals, it, it's really tough. I remember watching my first Paralympics um, and being blown away and finding the terminology that Channel 4 had used of superhumans as completely appropriate and I thought, that's right, you're, you're, you're so much more than I could ever be and was deeply in admiration of it. And then later sort of started to engage with others and realised that it's two sides of a coin, isn't there? There's that kind of what I saw as incredibly inspirational. I spoke to a, a fellow friend losing their eyesight and they said they felt terrible because they didn't think that they could ever do any of that to that level. And I guess where I'm going with this answer is for all of us, the road is very different, but I think for all of us, there is more empathy, more support than we perhaps know or even understand where to find it's that kind of I, I couldn't give advice that would be helpful to other individuals but I could say in terms of a group share for anyone undergoing any of the challenges that you and I face M it's that I really do think that society will help and if the first person you ask isn't helpful, don't think that's it. It just means that they weren't the right person to ask. Just keep repeating your same need, and I promise you will find the person with the right answer for you. It just won't necessarily be the first, second, third person. Just keep asking, and and you will find the support you need. That is really lovely advice and I think that that's so important you know I think particularly for disabled people as well who say may struggle to get their symptoms diagnosed or understood by you know the first medical professional that they may see you know that there are other avenues like you say to get the support that you need and I, I just think that that's really incredible advice. Emma, that actually reminds me, I, I will not name the professor, but when at 21, I went to Moorfields 
just for my parents wanting everything sort of to be confirmed by professionals as well as what they had told me. Two professors stood in front of a 21-year-old arguing on whether I had retinitis pigmentosa or choroideremia. They could have found another room to have that argument in. Mm. Neither of them seemed to be considering that they were telling a 21-year-old that he would go blind. Um, That comes back to what I said to you about don't be upset if the first person you speak to isn't helpful. Mm. (laughs) All the others that... (laughs) that thankfully can dispel those rather horrific memories. I I can certainly relate, although I was a very small child and don't remember this myself. My um, parents have told me when they took me to to a doctor to try and diagnose my condition, um, because it wasn't known in our family, one doctor said that I was lazy. Um, And I... First, I take very strong exception to that, but also it's just so odd that well that a toddler can be lazy, yeah. and you're saying that to their parents. And of course, my my parents were having none of it, so I'm glad that they also sought a second opinion on that. But I, yeah, it's I really hope that at some point those two doctors that you encountered reflected <laughs> on that conversation but thank you for for sharing that experience of not not a particularly pleasant memory for you too as well emma outrageous is what i would say (laughs) i always i keep asking my mom every now and then what was his name i'm trying to write to him (laughs) do you know what funnily enough emma that you say that i was thinking oh if he could see you now (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I hope so but um yeah but no, I just want to say a huge thank you so, so much for joining me on this podcast. You've been at the top of my list to invite on this since I had this idea because of our you know, open discussions around disability that you and I like to have, you know, was um, as we work at Scope. But just thank you so, so much for this. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed diving into all of this with you. It's my opportunity to now make you blush in that for anyone listening, Emma, I think was the fourth, third or fourth person I met at Scope. I was not only super, super impressed with her presentation to the supermarkets, (laughs) but also Emma as a person and going on to create this podcast wow keep going em you're doing a great job and thank you so much for inviting me thank you so much for listening to this episode of the wheelchair activist with paul fuller i hope you enjoyed speaking to him as much as i have and you can definitely see why he helped inspire this wonderful podcast Before you go, I want to remind you that we do have a GoFundMe and a Patreon set up for this podcast. Every donation we get will be invested right back into the accessibility of this content to make sure that no one is shut out from listening to these amazing conversations. If you're able to donate anything, that would be amazing. 
And if not, give this podcast to share and maybe someone will be able to help us out and more importantly, might benefit from listening to these amazing discussions. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you in the next one.